Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm going to have a wonderful hour planned for you. Dr. Mark Musk is in the studio. I'm so glad he's back. We call this hour Ask the Professor. So all you have to do is send me your questions. I know you've got one. I know you do. Because every time we do this, I have great questions that come over. And we always talk about how smart the listeners are. And in fact, you are smart. And I know you study your Bible. And I know you care about God's Word. And I know you love it. So I know you have questions. 877-933-2484-877-933-2484. Dr. Mark Muska has been teaching here at the University of Northwestern for 30-some years. I'm not going to get specific, but... Cause I ran the, out of fingers cause, and cause, toes. Because so. what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> So I think we're going to start off, Mark, with a question that came in from a listener a little while ago, which I think you had time to look up and address. So this is going to be good. Let's see. Here's the question in a little bit more detail. In Genesis 23, 10 to 20, Abraham bought a field in Machpelah to bury Sarah. Okay. In Genesis 33, 18 to 20, Jacob buys some land in Shechem from the sons of Hamor. In Acts 7, 15 and 16, Stephen is speaking before the council and says that Abraham bought a burial place in Shechem from the sons of Hamor, who is the father of Shechem. Mm -hmm. So we're wondering, is there a linguistic issue going on here that would explain this? Yeah, I don't think it's a linguistic issue. That has to do with language and everything. It's more of a historical issue. And so um, I had to do a little digging around. These I like these kind of questions from Gary and Ginny here yes. that because they're really looking at their Bibles. Oh, they are, they are for sure. And we hold to the idea that the Bible is historically accurate, that this isn't a bunch of fables, myth, legend, superstition, that kind of thing. But when it talks about these places and people, they really did live. And that's the claim we make as uh, Bible believers. And so it's good to get into the detail of these, especially when it looks like some historical accounts here don't quite line up. And, uh, Bill, I'm not interested in making excuses for the the recollection of Stephen here Mm -hmm. in Acts. Uh, That's a solid... Eighteen hundred years later, okay. you know what that he's talking about here. It's a long time since Abraham, Jacob, uh, Isaac, uh, Joseph; those guys lived. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, however, you have to understand when things are when things are rep- uh, represented historically. Uh, oftentimes, the the uh, actual lineage of it is collapsed, and I think that's what we're seeing here with Stephen. Uh, just to give you context in Acts 7, Steve's, Stephen's life is on the line. This guy's been a powerful witness for Jesus, and it's driving the Jews in Jerusalem crazy because he refutes them. And so they bring a false accusation against him that he's speaking against Moses and the law. 
And so at the beginning of chapter 7 of Acts, the high priest says to him, are these things so? And here goes Stephen. The rest of the chapter almost is him giving a survey of the Old Testament, the law, and all these people. He is demonstrating he has tremendous respect for the Old Testament and the law. He is not speaking against Moses and the law. And he also gets a really bad jab in on these Jewish leaders that costs him his life. Mm -hmm. That after he's done, it says they clenched their teeth and uh, and uh, stoned him to death. And this is where we're introduced to Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, that he's in hearty agreement with the killing of Stephen. Wow. So can you just see the wham? You know, yeah. this is really high conflict going on right yeah. now in Jerusalem about the gospel. But in here, Stephen gives this panorama historical run-through of the history of the Old Testament, and he gets into this thing with Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and so forth. And uh, I I looked at two or three uh, students of Genesis who've really studied this thing, and the consensus seems to be from these scholars is that... uh, uh, Stephen wasn't interested in giving every little detail as it's recorded in Genesis. And so he kind of compresses the whole thing and talks about these burial places for Abraham, his wife, Sarah. It's actually the family burial site now, this cave in this uh, field of Machpelah. But this is in Canaan. It is the land that was promised to Abraham when God promised to bless him. He promised them this land as their land. It's present-day Israel. Some people call it Palestine. But this cave where Abraham was buried, you see later in Genesis uh, 25, 35, 49, that his wife uh, Sarah was born there. Isaac and Rebekah, I'm sorry, not born there, buried there. Isaac and Rebekah were buried there. Uh, Jacob and Leah were buried there. And then when Joseph's bones came back from Egypt, he was buried there. That's recorded way at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, after they conquer the land. And that's the significance of this. Uh, So he compresses the story there and smushes Abraham and Jacob together like they're one and the same. And I'm not going to fault him for that, that this is, he's got a whole different thing in mind than to give some history lesson with a final exam after he gets done lecturing them about the historical details to this. So it seems as though when he talks about Abraham and Jacob here, that he's seeing the two of them as one. Mm -hmm. And the point he's making is they were buried in the land promised to Abraham, not in Egypt. And that's especially important for Joseph number two guy in Egypt. Wow. But he told them explicitly in Genesis 50 at the end of the book of Genesis that when he dies, do not leave his bones in Egypt. When you leave, take my bones with you. And they do that in the book of Exodus and then they bury him. You bury people in their home. And mm-hmm. that is the home of Abraham and his uh, and his generations. So that's the, that's the main point Stephen's making. And I'm going to excuse him for just putting the whole thing together here and kind of smushing it together. It's as if I'm talking about the Civil War period, and I take and I put Abraham Lincoln in together with Ulysses Grant and talk about, you know, the history. Well, the the two of them are separate, and the one first and then the other. You could make a point there, but that's that's stretching the text to address something. It wasn't 
intending to address. Mm-hmm. If they would have stopped Stephen and said, oh, now, wait a minute, Stephen, you know, that, that, uh, Jacob was the one who bought this from the, 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 the guys, the, uh, the sons of Heth or, or the sons of Hor, uh, he, would have, he would have corrected that. He mm-hmm. knew that. But it wasn't the point. Do you ever talk with people like this where you're giving a general sh- survey of something and you get one little side fact wrong and they go, Oh, no, Bill, you know, that's this and that. You just want to, you know, go, <laughs> no. give it a rest. You know, no. that's not the point I'm making. Okay, I got this one little detail wrong, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? I think that's the spirit in which Stephen is giving this in Acts. Mm-hmm. And you got to know it's a tense situation oh, yeah. there. Yeah. Was Paul present at the stoning of Stephen? Yes. He was. He was. They laid their clo- the cloaks, their mm-hmm. uh, outer garments, at the feet of Paul when they went to stone Stephen. Wow. And wow. then in chapter 8, the next chapter, it says, and he was in hearty approval for yeah. stoning Stephen. So, uh, uh, you know what? Saul, who became Paul, uh, he was an opponent of the gospel. He was an opponent of Jesus. And you can say he's got blood on his hands because he was going around finding Christians and arresting them, bringing them back so that they could face uh, 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 consequences for putting their faith in Jesus. So uh, Paul has, he had blood on his hands. And you know what? He knew it too. Mm -hmm. I love it in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking about the people that Jesus uh, appeared to after the resurrection, and he says, and last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born because I persecuted the church. Yeah. You know, so it seems like he carried a healthy guilt about that <laughs> the rest of his life. He mm-hmm. never forgot that he he was an enemy of Jesus for a, a, a period of time in his life. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that answer, Mark. That's really helpful. And I bet Gary and Ginny loved that, too. Well, you know, I liked what they put at the bottom of this, though, too, though. They said the bigger question is how do we respond or how do we react when people bring up these historical things like that? Mm -hmm. And what I, uh, you know, we hold to the idea that the Bible is perfect in everything it affirms, Mm -hmm. uh, even historical details. And so uh, when someone questions like that, uh, you do the best to answer it, but then you recognize that, there are limits to any historical record like this, and that does not make it wrong. It may be incomplete, but mm-hmm. it's not wrong. And mm-hmm. so we can have confidence, uh, the, the historical confidence in the scriptures, oh my word, uh, the things that have been substantiated through archaeology, it's just stunning, Bill. Uh, that I've had the privilege of leading uh, several trips over to Israel with students uh, during spring break. And you go one site to the other, you see these places. And it's really, it's kind of... uh it's kind of entertaining in a the dark kind of a way because if you go back several decades and even a century or so ago, there were many scholars that were poo-pooing the accuracy of the Bible because, well, we've never found that town that the Bible talks about. And we've never found this people, this, this nation or this ethnic group that the Bible talks about. And then you know what? The archaeologists get out yeah. there in the dirt and they uncover these things. And, you know, you in your worst moment, you just want to go, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> You know, and say it, it's really there. Yeah. But it's a stunning archaeological record that when things have been found archaeologically, they always are in harmony with yeah. the scriptures. They never counter the scriptures. Yeah. And that's impressive. Yeah. All right. That's an interesting way to start. I appreciate your answer and your uh, research on that question. I think we'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more time with Dr. Mark Muska, and that is Ask the Professor. 
Do let me know what your questions are. You can text them to 877-933-2484. I know you want to text. I know you want to do it. So just do it, okay? Let's get some questions coming in. Be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. That's, yeah, that's a song for him. That's his... I'm calling that your theme song. Why not? You like that song, don't you? I adopted that song when I first became a Christian. It's my favorite. Nice, nice. All right, here's a question, Mark. When I'm reading the Book of Romans, which I love the Book of Romans, it's mm-hmm. really solid, but I get to chapter 16 and I do a quick glance and I go, ah, eh, nothing there for me. So let's just say, for example, in verse 12, it says, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. Those women, those women who work hard in the Lord. Yeah. Now, are there some hidden gems in this verse that I'm completely missing? Because I don't know who Tryphena or Tryphosa is, although it is fun to say. Well, and then it says Persis in there, too. So yeah. you've got three of them. Yeah. Uh, it probably means nothing to us okay. today directly, but realize that the scripture, you know, there's transcendent truth that crosses the ages, but this was very meaningful for these Roman Followers totally. of Christ, yes, especially because, and I think Paul does this with all these greetings because he had not yet been to Rome with the gospel. There's two books that he writes before he got to the city, and uh, Romans is one of them, and Colossians is the other one, that he makes it quite clear in chapter 1 of Romans that he's very interested in coming to them and imparting some spiritual gift to them, and that they would be encouraged by him, and he would be encouraged by them, each other, uh, and their faith. And so uh, this is a way for him to validate them, I think. Maybe he had other motives, too, but to say, I may not have been there, but I know plenty of you. Oh, cool. And we are bonded in the Lord, even though we haven't been able to have this fellowship yet uh, together. So I, I think that's pretty special. I like it. And when I think of Paul having Phoebe deliver the letter mm-hmm. uh, Romans to the Romans, I assume that she read that letter out loud. Did she even feel questions? Why Phoebe and why not Timothy or Titus? Who knows? Yeah. Right. She was available and she was yeah, yeah. willing. Okay. But then also in verse 22, it says Tertius is the one who's uh, transcribing the letter too. So Paul dictated it to him. Mm-hmm. See, I thought that might fill some time. I was wrong. Hmm. Well, I had that question. I thought that would oh, fill some time. It's... I think it's just a great thing. These are real people. <laughs> that, I know. I know. And the fellowship of the church here. That yeah. This is, uh, they mean a great deal to Paul. Let's go to 2 Timothy 2.12. If, yeah, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If yes. we disown him, he will also disown us. Mm-hmm. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for mm-hmm. he cannot disown himself. Yep. 
I brought that verse in for a fitting. I'd like it back in the next five minutes. It's um, it's almost a poem. In fact, in a lot of Bibles, they put it in poetic kind of uh, uh, typeface uh, as they uh, do it. He says, it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, with Christ, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him... And it's, uh, or if we will deny him, he also will deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Paul's just making it out there to say, if someone denies Jesus, there's really no uh, reason for hope that they belong to Christ and that he will refrain from denying them. Uh, This gets, I don't know if it's the question you have it, but this gets into this uh, very involved discussion about whether someone can lose their salvation, that's saying it negatively, Mm -hmm. or if we are secure in our salvation, and that's putting it positively. And that discussion's been going on a long time. You've got whole schools of thought that uh, differ with each other Mm -hmm. on that question, and... uh, You've you've been around me long enough, Bill, to know that I like to divide things into the hypothetical, theoretical, abstract discussion on one hand, but then the practical discussion mm-hmm. and the how do we live discussion about an issue like that. And so there are solid Bible verses in the New Testament that give people reason to think that someone can lose their salvation. There's a couple beauties in the book of Hebrews that are warnings about falling away. And then there's a bunch of perverses that those who believe you you are secure in your salvation that they use to support their position. And uh, uh, Jesus in the Gospel of John in particular has a, a couple really good ones that they refer to. So what do we do with that then when we appear to have passages that we're not able to reconcile with one another? Sometimes people just forget those ones over in John if they want to believe that you can lose your salvation. And other people, if they want to believe they're sure in their salvation, they just kind of ignore Hebrews in the Second Timothy 2 passage. Mm-hmm. And that's not fair to the Scripture. You need to look at all the passages that address the issue that you're looking at mm-hmm. or the subject you're looking at. So theoretically, abstractly, I don't know if I can sort all that out and untangle it mm-hmm. to uh, satisfactorily. Uh, the key test is... Can you answer all the questions that are raised by that passage? And I can't. Okay. Uh, either side of that question. But then practically, can somebody lose their salvation? Well, you know, the, 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 the scenario that comes up there is that somebody claims to be a Christian. They go forward in a Billy Graham meeting 40 years ago. Uh, they're regular church goers. Uh, they witness to people. They read their Bible. They spend time in prayer, have every appearance of being a Christian. And then they walk it away from it all. They leave it. You know, is there any reason to hope that they are saved? And practically speaking, Bill, as I address somebody like that, I'm going to go and talk with them with great concern Mm -hmm. to say, you are very difficult to explain from the Bible's perspective, and you are in great danger if you don't return to Jesus. Why don't you, what's happening? Why, why the, this walking away from him like that? And so I will treat the person like they need Jesus. Uh, whether they were ever a Christian in the first place or not, they sure need to change this attitude mm-hmm, yeah. or 
they're in trouble. I'm not going to give them any assurances from the Scripture if they're in an attitude of rebellion or disinterest in Christ. And so that, I mean, that kind of leaves the theoretical stuff aside to say, practically speaking, realistically, you need to talk with the person in love and kindness and do what you can do to draw them back to Christ, whether they ever belong to him or not. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Mark. Here's another question. When Paul said, forgetting what is behind, I press forward toward the goal. Yes. Do you think he was putting his former persecution of the church behind him in the interest of spreading the gospel instead of expending energy mourning his past? Yeah, yes and no. Uh, Paul never forgot his past. That comes through in so many of his letters. So he he didn't forget it, but he also remembered that his past was past, and now is the time to live for Christ, and he knows where he's going. And I think that's the main thing that he's getting at in that Philippians 3 passage, mm-hmm. forgetting what lies behind. I can't change that. I have blood on my hands because of persecuting the church. Mm-hmm. So, but now I am what I am, he says, and I go forward. I didn't, I didn't read it uh, when we talked about Paul having this guilt feelings, but he says later, he says, and when it came to the other apostles, I outworked them all. I worked all the more earnestly to spread the gospel and to be faithful to Jesus Christ. So it's not a bad thing to remember your past if it motivates you in the present and the future to walk with God. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to get on your pity pot or start feeling guilty all the time, uh, this is where this whole thing of shame comes in. I finally figured out, you know what shame is? It's guilt feelings. People feel guilty and they feel shamed. And so uh, it's nothing to be ashamed of any longer, but you don't forget it either. And you use it as a motivator to serve Christ now and take steps forward. The past is gone. You can't change it, but you can do something about today and tomorrow. When we are have when we get our sins forgiven and our sins separated as far as the east is from the west, yep. why would we want to be dwelling on, on them if if God no longer does? Yeah, I, I like that idea a lot. Me and, too. And so uh, sometimes we talk about this in terms of God forgetting our sins and trespasses. Well, that raises questions with how can an omniscient, all-knowing God forget anything? And so I don't think it means that it's suddenly gone out of his memory, but the force of that is is that he disregards it now. Mm-hmm. It's gone. It's been dealt with, and so he is not going to be bringing it back up and holding it over our heads. It's been paid for by Christ. All right. Take a little break. When we come back, we would love to get your questions for Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor, 87 877- Seven nine three three two four eight four. That's the number to text eight seven seven ninety three faith. Or you can also email me if you like email a little bit better. Bill at myfaithradio.com. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. We'll be right back.
are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. All right, we're so glad to be back with Dr. Mark Muska, and we are uh, taking questions, and there are lots of them coming in. So let me know if you have one, 877-93-FAITH. Mark, here's an interesting observation. In a fallen world, don't contradictions seem legit? For example, we live in a beautiful world, but there's evil. Yeah, I don't know if I would say legit, but I'd say they're real. (laughs) Contradictions are real. Uh, This... uh, I like to talk about this with the human race, Bill, to say I think Christianity is really the only outlook that helps explain what we are as humans, that we have such greatness within us. You look at music, the arts, uh, the architecture of a building, uh, going to the moon, for crying out loud. We are capable of such great things as a human race, and yet we are capable of such awful things mm-hmm. as well. And how do we make sense out of that? Well, you know, uh, the book of Genesis does it right off the bat. We're created in the image of God. We have the stamp of God upon us as human beings, and that means very great things are possible, but we're also corrupted by sin, and it goes right down into every part of us and corrupts us so mm-hmm. that we are capable of, of awful, terrible wickedness and evil. So those tensions are all over the place. And Mm -hmm. I think that you're going to see those tensions melt away when the clouds part and the Lord Jesus comes and brings perfect peace and love and unity to this world. Yeah. It's going to be great. When you talk about going to the moon, you meant astronauts, don't you? You didn't mean you, right? No, I've never been there. Okay. I would probably not be taken real seriously if I... Yeah. Claimed that. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I like to do a little clarification every now and then. Thank you, Bill. You saved my reputation. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. (laughs) How do we... Yikes. All right. (laughs) Joseph asks, how do we remain encouraging but yet truthful when prayer requests run contrary to Scripture? For example, many pray for a great revival in the world, but scripturally speaking, as we may enter into the last days, we're told there will actually be a great falling away. Yeah, we can uh, we can pray like crazy on both sides of something like sure. that and then talk about it mm-hmm. and say, what should we expect? I'll tell you what, I think this last year with what's been going on in this country and in the church, it's it's been a slap in the face for a lot of Christians to wake us up, me included, about the the things that the Bible talks about when the return of Christ draws near. And I'm not saying he's right around the corner. He might be, but this has been really different, and it really lines up with several New Testament passages, the words of Jesus himself talking about what's going to be true on the planet when uh, Christ uh, is uh, drawing near. So, uh, But when it comes to prayer, you know, I think the best encouraging thing you can do, Joseph, is pray and ask God's will to be done and acknowledge that you sincerely desire for awakening to take place, 
I hope we pray that regularly, but then like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, but your will be done, Lord. And if this is the time for this hardness of hearts and people's love growing cold, those are awful concepts, aren't mm-hmm. they? Yeah. But that's what the scripture tells us is going to precede the return of Christ. So let him sort it out. But mm-hmm. Uh, you know, talk to him like he's your father and say, I don't understand this. How can we have both? I sure want awakening. I want to see my my family awakened. I want to see my church awakened and the city awakened. But uh, your will be done, Lord. Mm-hmm. So, Another question, Mark, uh, involves death. When a person dies, mm-hmm. are they in a state of waiting sleep mm-hmm. until Jesus comes back yeah. and gets everyone? Or do you go straight to heaven? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, there's a little confusion about this. There, There is a, um, a teaching out there that sometimes is called the soul sleep uh, idea that when we die physically, our bodies will decompose. And then what is the immaterial part of us, if you call it our spirit, our soul, mm-hmm. our personhood, whatever it is, that that we fall asleep. It's like we're unconscious until the return of Christ when the the voice of the archangel, the trumpet sounds, and the dead will cry, uh, when Christ will rise first. Uh, that's First Thessalonians 4, and Paul describes those who is dead as those who had fallen asleep. And so there's been an interpretation of that to say it is quite directly falling asleep, they're unconscious. But there's other passages that argue against that, and a couple of them and I don't agree with this idea of soul sleep. I think the scriptural emphasis is on us immediately going into the presence of Christ when we take our last breath. Uh, I just love what he said to the thief on the cross before he died. Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, Paul also in Second Corinthians 5 He says, uh, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then Paul, in uh, the first chapter of Philippians, he's talking to the, the Philippian believers whom he loves dearly. They support his work, and he's reporting in on the gospel in, in Rome and how it's spreading even though he's in prison. But he says then that he, uh, he has the desire to die and to be with Christ. He's tossed. And so uh, I, I'm in Philippians 1 here. Uh, he says in verse 21, "'For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain.'" But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart, to die, and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. I can't imagine Paul would want to die and leave the ministry to conk out before right. Jesus in heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that just doesn't great point. that doesn't make sense mm-hmm. that he's anticipating he's going to see the lord jesus when he dies and it's going to happen uh, right away i can't remember i always get this wrong but one of the great hymn writing women that was blinded anybody n- know who that was was that uh, uh amy uh, carmichael uh, anyway she was blinded at birth but she wrote hundreds of mm-hmm. hymns during her life 
And someone at one asked her once asked her that, uh, uh, "Are you are you sad that you can't see?" And her response was, "I consider that I have virgin eyes because the first thing I will ever see is the face of my Savior." Oh, stop! 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 So I think that's, <laughs> that's in that's in the that's, that's in the spirit though yeah. of this to be absent from the body is to be wow. present with the Lord. Wow. So isn't that's, that cool? That's so cool. I almost teared up there. That was really strong. Say, let me just add one more question to the same question you just talked about, and that is, this is a a very sweet, dear part of this question. Um, When we get to heaven, will our loved ones be there waiting for us? Yeah, that one, you know, we just don't get enough information about the afterlife. And so, you know what I like to do, Bill, with people like this is to say, uh, Whatever happens, you're going to be so filled with joy, rejoicing mm-hmm. at whatever the circumstances are. So my response to that is to say, you bet you're going to see your loved ones. Or if you don't see them, what you do see is going to be so overwhelmingly joyful and complete perfection that it won't bother you when you get there not to see him right away, <laughs> whatever's going on. I think when we see the face of Jesus, we're all going to just sit there and radio can't get this, but I'm just kind of staring off at, at Jesus' face right now. That might happen uh, for a couple hours before I'm interested in anything right. else right. to just behold the face yeah. of, of Christ like that. Yeah. So, so, Mark, you can say thanks to Jill. So say thanks, oh, Jill. Thanks, Jill. Uh, she said Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby. There yep. you go. Yep. I got to write that down. I always get it wrong. Yeah. So. Thank you. There's always people out there that can help. Isn't that the greatest? That's the best. Yeah. Here's a question. Are the Jews today still obligated to follow Old Testament rituals and Saturday Sabbath? Are they obligated to do it? To do what? To follow no, Old to Testament. No, to be saved? Well, that's just the question. I, I assume if they're, if they're believers, if they're they don't Ju- have to follow any of this. Right. Well, if they're Jews and practicing Judaism, sure, that that's what their religion says. Yeah, they're Messianic Jews, right? Mm-hmm. No, no, no. They're just Jews. They're just Jews. Okay, yeah. We've got plenty like that uh, that, that gather on the Sabbath and, and do the things according to the law. Uh, they're faithful to their religion. Now, does that save them? Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, that, that what saves us or what justifies us is our faith in the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ has completed or fulfilled the law uh, remember, Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And to fulfill it means that its obligations and requirements have been met. So you don't have to do any more other than to trust in Jesus that he finished it. He completed it. He fulfilled it. So for a Messianic Jew, they are not under that obligation anymore to do the rituals of Judaism. Having said that, Bill, and knowing a few of these Messianic Jews, many of them still will have the Shabbat meal Mm -hmm. on the weekend. And the question I ask them, are you depending on that to justify you, to make you right with God, or are you uh, depending on Jesus and his death for your sin 
to be right with God. And if they say the second, they're dependent on Jesus, this is just tradition that yeah. they're continuing in Enjoy. their house. German Christians still love to dance the polka. Are they seeing that as a way to get to heaven and to be right with God? Well, we got a problem. Depends on how good they dance, right? No, no, no. <laughs> they can be the best dancers in the world, and it's still not going to get them uh, to heaven. I'm corrected again. But if it's something they enjoy to do and they're trusting Jesus yeah. for the forgiveness of sins, have at it. You know, yeah. that this is a part of their life. It's part of their tradition. Mm-hmm. So, Carol would like to know when the rooster crowed after Peter denied Jesus three times, was it really a rooster or was it a shofar? Or, it do, says, we, or do we really know? It says it's a cock okay. that crowed, and so okay. I'm going to go with that. Okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Um, let's see here. How can I gain more boldness to evangelize? The thought of evangelizing terrifies me. Yeah, you have a lot of... Uh, company, that uh, we are very adept as Christians of finding excuses and rationales not to talk to people about about Jesus, uh, because it can be stressful, uncomfortable. You may get uh, in a confrontational situation, but you know what, Bill? Most of the time, not. Uh, My suggestion for someone like this is to find someone or find a group that is experienced in witnessing and attach yourself to them Mm -hmm. and just go with them as they share their faith in the gospel and just sit there and keep quiet and listen and watch and you will take steps forward. Then you can start to practice maybe with these people and then get the boldness to be able to step out. But it's a step-by-step process. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is what happened to me when I first became a Christian. I was at the university, and uh, uh, the person who led me to faith in Christ, uh, by the way, he's been in ministry now for almost 50 years. It's really something. But uh, he said, let's go out and let's talk with some students here about Jesus. And I was terrified, but he said, just sit there and keep quiet and just watch and listen. And you know, after a few times doing that, Bill, it... I wasn't thinking about myself so much because I was listening to these people we were talking to and just how lost they were. And I remember how lost I was and just, and you know what? It helped me get my eyes off of me and how nervous I was and afraid to speak up at all. And you just, you can see it, you can hear it from these people. They are as lost as little lambs out there in the wilderness, and they need Jesus. They need that message. And so that helps you get over yourself a little bit, Mm -hmm. and you're not just thinking about yourself. You're thinking about this person. And then, you know, it's a matter of uh, witnessing is a matter of just looking for open doors to be able to talk to people and then seeing where it goes. One of my favorite things that's really gaining in popularity now is you meet somebody or you see someone on the street and you talk with them a little bit and just ask them, is there anything I can pray for you about? It's amazing the things that come out of people's mouth when mm-hmm. you ask something like that. Mm-hmm. And so th- th- it's it's not rocket science, but it just takes a little courage and a little faith in Jesus. He's not just going to let you get hung out to dry and taking a step. Mm-hmm. When I was uh, getting into performing, I had some advice from a very famous person at the time. And he said to me, well, first of all, do it for seven years and see if you're any good. 
Uh, That's really good. I thought seven years. I got to know by the end of this week if I'm any good. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I would give that inf- I would give that advice to anyone that's struggling with evangelism. Mm-hmm. Go do it for seven years and see if you're any good at it. Because yeah. I promise God will show up every time. Yeah. And Bill, you are really good at it. Thanks, Mark. Good yeah. time to take a commercial. All right. <laughs> Little break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. We'll be back with your questions. Let me know what they are. We'd love to hear from you. 877-93-FAITH. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. with Dr. Mark Muska. Let me know what the questions are. Keep them coming. All right, Mark, let's see. Um, Job 5-7, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's easier than we think. Uh, Which way do sparks go when they come off a fire? Uh, They go up. They go up. Yeah. And so So just like that, we're born for trouble. Oh, gotcha. That's just a simple illustration. Yep. don't keep, think keep, that something unusual yeah. has happened to you. Oh, you that know, makes perfect sense. When you have trouble. Yes. Yeah. Uh, get used to it. Okay, Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according yeah. to his power that is that is at work within us. Mm-hmm. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Yeah. We're able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According no, no, no. To he is he, able to yeah, do yes, immeasurably more. Yeah. <laughs> Not us. Not us. Yes. Yes. Uh, who is able to do. So we understand that how. You want it in straight English, I think? Yeah. He's saying, Paul's saying is, take the lid off your request. Don't. Put limits on it because of your lack of vision or uh, in, insight into what's possible. So uh, throw it out there to the Lord. We don't pray like this very much. No, we don't, do we? It'd be a good way to end things. Instead of in Jesus' name all the time to say, and you know, Lord, if you'd want to do something completely more than this, go for it. Although we were joking around <laughs> during the break, you be, better be careful what you ask right, for. Right. Because it might might be more than what you want, but... Uh, yeah, uh, this uh, uh, take take the cap off, let the thing go, and uh, let God work. He he can he can do things that you just didn't even imagine were possible. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark. Last time I think, or two times ago on the show, you talked about the gospel, and you did it so mm-hmm. eloquently. It was so warm, so endearing. I've got a listener that says, "Would you?" Tell us the gospel again. It just makes me so glad to hear it. Yeah. Now, as we talk about evangelism, we talk about getting the courage to reach out. Maybe if we just hear that lovely story again told by Professor Muska, it might be really nice and encouragement to all. 
Well, I, I just, uh, Bill, I think that the best passage in the Bible that explains what the gospel is is 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Paul, in the second half of 1 Corinthians, he's answering questions that the Corinthian believers had. So he talks about singleness, marriage, and divorce in chapter 7. Uh, he talks about liberty in Christ in chapter 8. And in chapter 10, he talks about the spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. And then in chapter 15, he says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel. And then he says, What gospel? Well, the one which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, For I delivered to you this gospel as of first importance, what I also received. And then he puts it out there so simply where he says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to, and then he lists a whole laundry list of people that he appeared to. And so if I'm getting that right, it's almost poetic where he's saying that the gospel message is that Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day. And he says, both of those things were according to the Scripture. If you look at the Scripture, they're right there. Christ died for our sins. It's Isaiah 53 just screaming at us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He he bled for us. By his wounds, we are healed. All of us have gone astray, but he died for the iniquity of us all. It couldn't be more blatant in Isaiah 53. So that's the kind of scripture he's thinking about. And then he was raised from the dead. That's Psalm 16, where David writes, and he says, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. That uh, uh, Peter quotes this in Acts chapter 2 in his message on Pentecost. And he said, David died. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah that he didn't rot in the grave. He was raised from the dead. And so Christ died for our sins. Theologians call this substitutionary atonement. Jesus acted as our substitute. He took our place and it provided atonement for sin. Atonement is a fancy word for forgiveness. Forgiveness means the debt's canceled. We already talked about it a little bit, that God forgets our sins. He doesn't take them into account any longer. The slate is clean that we have. And not just clean now, but that means our slate is clean permanently, past, present, future. Everything we ever have done, everything we've done today, and everything we ever will do. Because use just a little logic there. It's all 2,000 years in the future when Jesus died. Who cares if it was in 2013 or 2023? (laughs) <laughs> That's a 2,000 years ahead for Jesus. It was all the future then. So that will make you sit down and think for a while that everything I will ever do to displease God, to sin, it's been paid. It's gone. It's been forgiven. And so that's... And then the resurrection just proves that it's all true. If uh, Paul says this later in First Corinthians 15... If the resurrection, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, our faith is worthless. We're still in our sins. Jesus was just a big talker if he died and wasn't raised from the dead. But by being raised from the dead, that means God accepted his sin payment. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sin for us, and God accepted it by raising him from the dead. If he wouldn't have accepted that sin payment, he would have let Jesus rot in the grave. 
I love what S. Lewis Johnson said. This guy was a great theologian back in the 20th century. He died a few years ago, but he wrote an article about 1 Corinthians 15, and he said, the resurrection is God's amen to Jesus. It is finished. When Jesus hung on that cross, the last words, some of the last words he said, it is finished. The payment's been made. And when God raised him from the dead, he said, amen, that's right. It mm-hmm. is paid. It's been done. So we we jump around and yell and shout and scream on Easter Sunday when we remember the resurrection because of that. But think of it, Bill. We can be at peace with God. All of the guilt and the distance that people feel between themselves and God, it can be erased. We can be at peace with God. We can have a clean slate. Our sins are forgiven. Everything we'll ever do has been paid by Christ, every wrong thing. And we now are eternal. We have eternal life. John says it in 1 John 5. He says that those of you who know Christ, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. He doesn't say that you think you might have it or that you hope that you will have it. He says that you may know you have eternal life. So what... What's stopping you? Right. <laughs> anybody listening right now, anybody thinking about this, what are you waiting for? Now is the e- time. Eternal joy, peace with God, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Ugh, doesn't get any better than that. Beautiful. If you need to continue this conversation with me, you can uh, send me a text. If you are wanting, needing, wanting to pray to receive Christ and you still feel like you've got a question you need to ask, you can send me a text. That wraps up our time with Dr. Mark Muska. Yeah, I just got another comment from Luke who asked you to tell us the gospel again. It makes me so glad to hear it. And I would agree with Luke. It makes me glad to hear it as well. Thank you, You know what? Makes me glad to hear it. I know. I love hearing (laughs) it. It's not called good news for nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Thanks for your time and have a wonderful uh, rest of the day and blessings um, on your wife who's in the car driving right now. She is. Yeah. I hope she's staying between the lines. Exactly. All right. That's all the time we have. Have a great night, everyone. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.